собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So about a month and a half ago, Michael Kaufman checked in with me. For those who don't know, Mike is an analyst of the Russian military and security. In my opinion, he's one of the best out there and my go-to guy when it comes to all things Russian military. Mike hasn't been on the podcast since 2017, so I figured this was a good time to check in and get an update. So we set up the conversation and included Dmitry Gorenberg, Mike's partner in crime and an astute observer of the Russian military in his own right. So in this interview, we talked about the field of Russian military analysis, the fallout of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, and how the Russian military is one of the main positive achievements of Putin's long presidency. Michael Kaufman is a research scientist at the Center for Naval Analyses and a fellow at the Kennan Institute, where he specializes in security and defense in Eurasia. He comments widely on Russian military affairs and foreign policy. He also blogs on the Russian military at his website, Russian Military Analysis. You can also find a long list of his many recent publications there as well. Dmitry Gorenberg is a senior research scientist in the Strategy, Policy, Plans, and Programs Division of the Center for Naval Analyses and an associate at the Harvard University Davis Center for Russian and East European Studies. He currently serves as the editor for Problems of Post-Communism, and Gorenberg is author of Nationalism for the Masses, Minority Ethnic Mobilization in the Russian Federation. He's also published widely on Russian military affairs and blogs about all things related to the Russian military on his website, Russian Military Reform. Here's Michael Kaufman and Dmitry Gorenberg. All right. Well, um, Michael, it's good to talk to you again. And this is like this is the third time I've I've talk, interviewed you for the podcast. And Dmitry, it's nice to have you on for the first time and to have both of you talk about uh, all things or most things Russian military. But uh, just to start off, I'd like to have you introduce yourself. So, Dmitry. Sure, uh, Dmitry Gorenberg. I'm uh, I've I've been working in the Russian military and security field for twenty some years. Uh, got a PhD in political science from Harvard uh, back in the day. We used to work on ethnic politics, but uh, you know switched over to security issues. Uh, uh, so I work uh, with with Mike at CNA, um, and the other thing I do is I edit the uh, uh, Problems of Post Communism uh, Journal, Political Science. Yeah, that thankless job. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually kind of fun. Uh, you know. Uh, kind of see what's going on in the field. Right, right. And Michael, how introduce yourself. Sure. Um, I don't edit any journals, but I'm director of the Russia Studies program at CNN. I do get to edit a lot of other folks' work that passes across my desk. And uh, also fellow at the Kennan Institute, Wilson Center, and at uh, CNAS Center for New American Security here in Washington, D.C. Uh, before that, I was at National Defense University for quite a few years in the Department of Defense and have primarily been working in the national defense and national security fields and have been in government or very close to, say, government adjacent organizations for much of my time. Uh, I'm originally from the Soviet Union, just like Mitri, and uh, have been working on Russia and the Russian military for quite a few years now. So what would each of you say is one of the most misunderstood things today when it comes to the Russian military? And I'll leave it open to whoever can start first. I would say, you know, for me, we all have, you know, our, our kind of uh, 
pet peeves and, and things that drive us nuts. Uh, I think I'm pretty well known for, you know, the the completely nonsensical idea of the Gerasimov doctrine that Valery Gerasimov is this uh, genius of political warfare that he wrote a doctrine uh, by virtue of the speech he gave in 2013 to the uh, uh, Russian Academy of Military Sciences. And a lot of people have basically piggybacked on that and rode that horse as part of this adjacent field of Russia meddlingology um, or, or sort of information disinformation. I don't know what you want to call it, but a lot of people had emerged after 2014, declared themselves to be expert on Russian uh, disinformation and uh, proceeded to write all sorts of things on the basis of this fairly incorrect take. And it's not Margiela's fault. He never meant for it to be as viewed as a doctrine. He basically wrote saying that, I'm sorry I invented this. And I used to tell him, you know, Mark, this is like, uh, you know, the, the story of Frankenstein where this creature escaped from your lab and then, you know, came back later kind of much stronger and then began, <laughs> began rampaging across the Russia field. Uh, and did a lot of damage because believe it, it takes it takes analysts and, and intelligence analysts and other people years of deprogramming military folks who kind of read these takes and think that this is the answer, right? That um, the Valery Gerasimov, the chief of Russian general staff, has some you know unified uh, field theory of of uh, warfare vis-a-vis -vis the West. Uh, that's an issue, you know. Escalate to de-escalate the notion that Russia has. Um, uh, plan to uh, escalate early on a conflict with nuclear weapons to compel uh, the United States or NATO allies to surrender. That one is at least much uh, less further from the truth, but it still has a lot of issues in how it's interpreted. Um, things like that. So these these terms crop up and they emerge. You know, hybrid warfare, which you know I I don't use in writing. It it sort of uh, it's it's another kitchen sink term where if you tell somebody you want to talk about Russian hybrid warfare, nobody actually knows what you plan to talk about. Um, you know, you just sort of, it, it literally can be anything. It's become a quasi theory of Russian foreign policy and basically anything Russians do that you don't like. And then next to it emerged Russian malign influence, Russian hostile measures, and uh, the sort of uh, panoply of uh, ambiguous, I indefinable terms, which are good bureaucratic terms for um, for corralling uh, different bureaucratic organizations and interdepartmental activity. I don't want people to get this wrong. There's a bureaucratic function to having those terms, but you know, I'm not in the government, so I'm, I can hate on them now. You know, like I don't have to use them. I don't have to go to meetings on Russian hybrid whatever and and listen to this. So I can actually, you know, do my job as an analyst parse terms, try to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And I mean, that's the value added of being outside of the system. The value added is not repeating what people in the system say. <laughs> that's not the contribution you're going to make. So but I don't know, I'll, I'll turn over to Dmitry because unfortunately, if you ask me what are things that drive me nuts in the field, there goes the rest of the, you know, the podcast session. <laughs> it was funny. I was going to bring up hybrid warfare, but uh, uh, I think one of, one of my great uh, sort of successes in um, raising uh, uh, child, children of a certain uh, a certain intellectual proclivity was that my son, who's a, in college right now, uh, like uses, uh, uses uh, hybrid warfare as a joke term uh, due to my influence. I, <laughs> so, so, uh, so that's, uh, that, that, that's one success. One thing that I think I'll add, I, I, I sort of, Mike and I share a lot of the, the, the things he mentioned. But one thing I'll add, which I think there's been actually some progress on, but used to annoy me greatly was the, the sort of threat inflation. So there was a, there's, there's a tendency uh, in parts of the field to assume that any Russian announcement about, let's say, a new weapon system or an, uh, some other activity is you know, 100% true and not inflated in any way. And then compare it to, uh, let's say, the U.S. military and the real situation there, not, you know, not the public pronouncements, which are also sometimes inflated, right? But, but and so that creates this kind of perception of, of uh, you know, sort of the, the 21st century equivalent of the missile gap or something like that, right? Uh, and um, 
I used to see this all the time, and I think I see it a little bit less, which um, to me is a sign that maybe the field's maturing a little bit, and there's people who have a little bit more knowledge uh, and understanding of how, you know, that, that we shouldn't just take what the Russian, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, MOD public relations uh, department says at face value. Um, you should, you know, I mean, sometimes the, the things they say actually work the way they say they do, and sometimes they don't, and you just have to have some knowledge to, uh, to parse uh, between the two. Yeah, I, I, I very much want to echo Dmitry's sentiments that you do really feel the field is maturing, and, and um, we're, we're talking about Russian military in a much more nuanced way. But, and the challenge was we're tracked forever in this debate, you know, whether Russian military is 12 foot tall or 4 foot tall, right? Um, the, other, the thing I would add to that is, though, that uh, one of my pet peeves is there is a subset of the field of sort of like Russian liberal opposition military analysis, uh, which writes a lot of articles that basically everything in the Russian military is garbage um, and that Russia's four foot tall. And that's part of because they're trying to discredit the sort of banal official narratives from Shoigu and the like, right, which engage in tremendous amount of PR. But they're having this kind of uh, odd interaction because Shoigu is not staying up at night reading their blog posts and articles. And the community they're having this interaction with is a sort of rapidly diminishing community of the sort of genuine liberal anti-systemic opposition, right? That maybe is reading this, was interested in it. But many of the things they write are also incorrect, right? That is in attempting to take on the official narrative and showing that the official narrative isn't true. A lot of things they write about the Russian military and the way they painted as four foot tall is also not true, right? And it feeds, I have arguments here, just to be clear that, um, it feeds the uh, tremendous bias and ignorance that we had prior to 2014. Because the reason why we had such a whiplash in the fuel, Sean, is because during the period of Russian military reform and modernization, post-2008, lots of people I was watching kept writing that this is all rubbish, Russians are never going to get anything done here, you know, the military reforms, they're not, they're not going anywhere, the modernization doesn't mean much. And then post-2014, that narrative flipped hard, right? And it didn't have to, it didn't have to, right? There could have been a genuine accounting for what was taking place and an interest in it. And so there are challenges between, you know, the people that say the Russians are coming and they're 12 feet tall. And there are also challenges between the people who say, this is all propaganda, it's Potemkin. You know, it's a Potemkin village. Uh, there's nothing really there. Um, it's, this is also not true. The people trying to discredit that other narrative are, are equally wrong. They're maybe slightly less wrong. Maybe it's a false equivalence, but they're still wrong. So, so Dimitri, one of the things that Michael's pointing out is that there's a lots of, there's a problem of, there seems to be a problem of perception. And that perception tends to be polarized, right? Between, you know, as he said, the four foot tall versus the 12 foot tall. So when you look at the Russian military, how do you evaluate, uh, you know, its condition? To, to get around these extremes? A lot of times what you want to do is you want to correlate the, the statements with the activities, right? So, so like, it's great that they said they have this weapon system that's going to do all these sorts of things. Uh, have they tested it? Uh, have the tests worked, right? <laughs> um, that kind of thing... Uh, can uh, you know what? What are they doing in their exercises? Uh, you know uh, that will often give you. You know when they were for many years uh, uh, in the relatively recent past, they were working on improving their automated control systems, and there were all these like super. Initially, there were all these super sunny pronouncements about how great all their things were working, but then if you actually look at exercise reports, uh, you could see that there were problems. And then, and so, so there was this delta here and you could kind of get at that. And then over time, it became clear that they were actually improving uh, those systems and they were working better, right? And so that delta decreased. Uh, but if you just kind of went with the pronouncements from the start, you'd have a false picture of, of their capabilities. So it's a lot of kind of triangulation uh, in a way. It's become, 
a little bit trickier. When I was writing the blog uh, actively, which was kind of 2009 to you know, 2015, 2016, um, there was still a fairly robust um, press, military press in Russia uh, that uh, was often critical. A lot of those people have either left the field or become less critical. So it's a little bit harder, uh, you know, sitting in, you know, in Boston or in Washington to get that information from open source uh, channels now than it was then. But you could, but there's still, you know, uh, there's a lot of, you know, materials out in, in, you know, social media channels also. So uh, as, as well as, as regular kind of old fashioned reporting. So there's, there's a variety, but the key is, you know, a variety of trying to, to compile a variety of sources and see if it gives you uh, uh, an overall picture rather than just focusing on one thing. It, is it, is it a, a, you know, talk, Michael, talk about the challenge of, of dealing with something like the Russian military uh, and getting access to, you know, good information. Um, it, is it, you know, is it, as Dimitri said, like has the access of information kind of shrunken uh, in the last several years? And and how do you deal with the problem that in, in many respects, you know, militaries like to keep information also close to the chest? Yeah, and, and the Russian military classifies everything, including the color of toilet paper. And they're very, like, like much of the state and the regime, they're very kind of ad hoc and inconsistent about what they choose to classify. It's very strange, actually. It's a hodgepodge approach, but increasingly things are being very bolted down in Russia. It's become much harder in recent years uh, to get access to, to good information. And, and a lot of things they do put out are sort of the more uh, officially, uh, officially colored uh, representations from the Ministry of Defense or the general staff. Um, you know, the, from my point of view, first and foremost, uh, you have to cultivate sources of information. Um, you have to engage with the people that are doing military analysis in Russia, whether independently, whether they're writing about it uh, as an analyst or as a journalist. You can do this. You can actually do this very successfully. It's incredibly helpful because you understand the context of what's being said. You understand the context of what's not being said. And I think Mitri will agree with me. Uh, it really helps to go to Russia, to be frank, to engage with these people. There's no substitute for it. And Mitri and I used to go typically, you know, before COVID, I think we used to go about three times a year. Um, it really helps to speak Russian. Um, <laughs> let me just put that out there. If you're, an, if you're an analyst in this field and you don't speak Russian and you want to be an authority on the Russian military, uh, it's, it's possible. It's increasingly more possible. But as the environment for what is easily accessible, right, the sort of green fields of information out there shrinks, what you will be able to get access to is, is, is going to be increasingly constrained. And, uh, you know, part, part of the other part is, of course, in engaging with other experts, because, you know, to be frank, Sean, we all have our different networks and resources. And it's really great to uh, to connect. And may, many people in this field are connected. You can tell the difference between people who have folks look at their work and review it before they put it out and versus versus those that are uh, just firing from the hip. Um, the the thing I would add to what Mitri was saying earlier is when you do analysis in this field, you really have to dig and do the research. Okay. At first blush, the initial takes are usually wrong. All right. The second thing I'll say is that a lot of people like to generalize from anecdotes as a crutch. You know, oh, the T14 Armada, you know, is behind on schedule. They're not buying it. So what? Does that tell you anything else about, you know, the billions of uh, dollars of spending on the rest of the part? on the rest of the military, I can find you a hundred failed programs in the U S military any time of day. Are you going to generalize from those to build a universal field theory of what's happening in the Russian armed forces? All right. So, um, this is the challenge we have to face is the way things get written is people will often generalize from one or two anecdotes. Uh, um, I, the plural of anecdotes is just not data and, and it's, it's not a great substitute for research. So, 
that's the that's the other thing I would add to the conversation that um, you really do have to dig in and be fascinated by something that you're trying to explore and you're trying to figure out what's going on and why. And you're not just going to hand wave that discussion and say, this corruption, oh, they haven't solved this problem. Well, most militaries haven't solved any fundamental problems. They're managing them. You know, <laughs> uh, if you have any if you have any defense experience, you find out that, uh, you know, it's like we kind of current the principle. Happy families are like and every family is unhappy in its, <laughs> its own way. You find that you find that most military establishments are suffering from a host of things that they continue to deal with and try to manage. So, so it sounds it sounds to me that you know what both of you are kind of suggesting is to look at the Russian to normalize the Russian military as a military institution. You know, it has its differences, but in many respects, it's has the same issues and it deals with the same problems as other modern militaries. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, like there are certain uh, uh, aspects of all, you know, in, uh, institutions or bureaucracies, right, that work in similar ways. I don't think there's, I mean, there are certainly some unique aspects to the Russian military by virtue of, you know, the combination of the institution, the culture, the, uh, uh, the military culture, the Russian culture, right? Uh, but at the same time, it is an institution, and it is, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 there's certainly a lot of parallels to other military institutions uh, uh, elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I would say that all militaries are, let's say, major institutional militaries, right, in powers like the U.S., Russia, China, are trying to deal with some similar challenges and tasks, right? But the but the internal, the organizational, the bureaucratic, or the cultural problems that they deal with are often different. And culture, as we like to say, tends to eat uh, doctrine for breakfast, right? And the culture of the Russian military is not like the culture of the U.S. military, and um, and the organization is not the same either, right? So the things that are inhibiting them from getting from from solving these challenges, or, or the things that they have to, you know, the flaming hoops of fire that they have to jump through are not quite the same. They are they are different, uh, and, and it's useful to know what those are to to, to understand where, even though all militaries are uh, have you know um, similar problem sets they're trying to address, the the actual process and the thing that's going on. Of course, the political systems are different too within which they're operating. So yeah, we can't just sort of. You know, say ah, Russian military, Chinese military, U.S. military, kind of, kind of similar. You know, different color oranges. <laughs> so, in July, the um, Russian government released a new national security strategy. Uh, you know, here is a, a a public statement document for for people like yourselves to pour over. So, what are what are some of the highlights of this doctrine that are worth noting, um, Dmitry? Sure. Uh, so, I I think one thing that we have to keep in mind when looking at documents like this is that they're in some ways they're they're retrospective rather than prospective right like they're usually advertised as here is the plan for the next six years you know they're revised every six years more or less uh so and, but what's actually happening uh to to a large extent is that they're codifying the developments of the last you know six years or so uh, and 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 putting that down on paper, so we see a lot of things that have changed since you know 2015, uh, such as uh, the U.S. NATO threat uh, is now you know front and center in a lot of documents. Whereas the 2015 version, even though it came after the Ukraine crisis, still had a lot of language on sort of. Um, maybe we can try to work together with the U.S., right? And and what it is is that it's not like suddenly there's a new U.S. threat to Russia. This threat has been there as far as they're concerned for that whole time period, but now it's on paper, uh, right? So so what, to me, so, so that's one thing. Um, second thing that I think was important is that the, the, the perception of threat from domestic destabilization, which they, and is, is, is sort of uh, another thing that's front and center. And it's really clear that it's 
that they don't, or, or, or at least to a large extent, don't distinguish that much between domestically caused uh, protests, you know, instability, uh, regime destabilization, de- 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 and foreign initiated, right? They conflate those two. They see, and you see this over and over in, not just in the documents, but in, the, in how they act, right? Anytime there's some protests, they're looking at, okay, is the CIA behind this? Is the, the U.S., you know, did um, uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, say something at some point or, you know, th- things like that, right? Um, and uh, so, so, so that's, uh, 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 that's important. Uh, and there's also a big emphasis on, on the information sphere. And that's, again, just, I think that's just a codification, again, of developments that we've been seeing uh in the world where that you know the cyber realm has become just much more important and it's reflected in this in this doctrine uh the only other thing i would add is there is that you know the fact that they have this whole section on traditional values um is also something that caught my eye um i think Dmitri nailed it i i would basically just make one or two good comments which is that that nss looked like uh, Nikolai Patrushev took a marker and just started editing the previous NSS and said, hey, here's kind of here's kind of the things I wanted to get into the last one and how I wanted that language to go. Uh, let's delete all these parts, as Big suggested that we had here before. That's not happening between us and the United States and the West anymore. And, uh, yeah, let's kind of bolt it down, you know, sort of uh, uh, look like uh, like a Patrushev brush pass over, over the, the, the latest iteration of the national security strategy and has a lot more of that tone and perspective in it, I would say, and a lot less of the things that colored the previous strategy, right? That had far more conversation about engagement, opportunities, and, and the like. Um, that's, that's about what I would say. But yeah, I I, I think that these tend to be refereed and, and confirming documents. And uh, uh, sometimes national security strategies are very useful. Other times they're not, they're, they're not really an essential guiding document. I probably, I personally, follow much more documents like the military doctrine or state uh, uh, fundamentals or foundations of policy in a particular area, whether it's, you know, nuclear deterrence, whether it's, uh, you know, naval policy or something like that. Those are usually incisive and they have kind of clear bullet points that are useful for for what we're trying to look at. The NSS on the whole is interesting, but... Um, I'm, I'm not big into reading the tea leaves, you know, of these documents. And many of them are declaratory documents, too. And I'm notorious for, like, for having a very low low opinion of the utility of declaratory policy documents. Let me ask about this relationship between domestic and foreign policy, because this is, a you know, not only uh, something that you find in Russia today, you can also see it in the Soviet period as well. Um, how, how does this, sh- you know... It, Talk a bit more, Dimitri, about this relationship between domestic and foreign policy and, and how much did they inform the actions of each other in your assessment? Yeah, so I think that there is uh, maybe in some spheres, especially the ones that are more focused, uh, I mean, of, of Russia analysis, uh, uh, the ones that are more focused on domestic politics to kind of, uh, I think, incorrectly assume that domestic politics drives everything, right? We saw uh, a bit of this in the Ukraine crisis where there was a certain uh, set of analysis that said, oh, they're just doing this to boost Putin's popularity rating, right? And that's not what's going on. Uh, I mean, it's a nice side effect uh, for, I mean, it certainly, they certainly, they certainly didn't mind, right? But I don't think that was the driver. And so, so I think, that the the thing that is driving a lot is this concern about regime stability. Uh, so to the extent that they fear that the West or the United States is out to overthrow the Putin regime um, and is using, you know, the Navalny and the, uh, the Russian opposition and, and so forth 
to do that in their from their point of view, right? That's that's their that's their perspective. Uh, that uh, influences how they react uh, in the international sphere, and we saw a really good example of that with the uh, interference in various you know elections, not just in the U.S. but also in Europe, uh, where they kind of see that as a uh, a tit for, I don't know if it, not necessarily tit for tat, but but a comparable, let's say, to what the what they see the U.S. is doing in Russia, uh, in Ukraine earlier, right? So so that I think uh, is a place where there is overlap uh, between domestic and and military spheres uh, more so than the than than in you know the kind of simplistic oh they just want to boost the popularity. Russia, on the foreign policy and military side, it has certain goals in that realm that it's trying to to achieve that are, you know, separate from issues like domestic popularity and so forth. And and we, you know, we can we can discuss you know things like uh, trying trying to uh, restore its role as a major player in the Middle East, for example. Uh, right, and that's a lot of the policy over the last five, five or six years in Syria and so forth uh, was related to that, and the and then they used the military in Syria to achieve some of those goals, right? So that you know, there was also some of the same people who talked about you know boosting popular Putin's popularity rating in in Ukraine with the Ukraine intervention trotted that back out when uh, you know Russia sent. Uh, some forces into Syria saying, oh, here, you know, they just want to continue that. That, you know, to my mind, that's not what was going on. There's actual like foreign policy interests. And so that kind of thing, I think, needs to be carefully spelled out. The one area, like I said, where the, there is overlap is in this regime stability. Uh, I mean, I'd say that this is probably one of the more interesting debates has always been in the community. There's a relationship between domestic politics and foreign policy naturally, but what is it? And um, to me, I very much agree with Mitri that I think Russian foreign policy has a genuine basis in foreign policy interests or strategy, and that a lot of Russian actions, you know, the proximate causes for those actions, the catalyst for them, are actually foreign policy events. That domestic politics is a factor. It's actually more often not a constraint because I think that the system actually does extensive polling and tries to understand to what extent there is public support for a particular action and try to manufacture consent internally. Uh, I, I do probably subscribe more to the uh, Russia strong weak man thesis of, of folks like uh, Tim Fry. I definitely don't believe and don't subscribe to diversionary war theory or distractionary war theories. I think that uh, the evidence behind them is terribly weak. They're not very predictive and, you know, uh, nine, nine times out of a hundred, they're wrong because most of the time when you look at genuine economic hardship or political problems for the regime and then the, nothing happens, they don't invade anyone. Right. And so, and so any given time, you're actually most likely going to be wrong with that theory and that approach. Um, I do think that the military, uh, has been one of the regime's most successful arguments in terms of helping to define, uh, public outlooks on its competence and public perception about uh, Russia's restored role in international politics, which has been an effect of uh, Russia's interventions and Russia's much more visible military presence uh, abroad. I think that's fair. I don't think that that's the principal cause of this activity. I think regime stability is very important, as Mitri said, but regime stability and regime survival is very important for all regimes, particularly authoritarian ones. Since they cannot re-legitimize themselves by elections, right? Okay, so we, we know the Earth revolves around the sun. That's a constant. What predictions did that allow you to make about foreign policy or international affairs, right? That's, that's a question I have saying, if we know that that's a constant, it doesn't actually help you predict uh, foreign policy or actions um, all, all that well. And in fact, it can lead you down the wrong rabbit hole where you're intellectually discrediting Russian foreign policy or the notion that Russia has a strategy by saying that the, the causes of Russian foreign policy behavior are all internal. I don't think that's true. Actually, regimes, internal repression, a lot of things that have been happening in Russia since, uh, especially 2012, are quite separate from foreign policy. 
There are ways by which the regime has chosen to address the opposition, dissent, and the like. And there are a lot of security uh, establishment aspects to those solutions that don't have anything to do with the military Russian foreign policy. What about the use of the military as a, a, you know, to this issue of the military as an institution of prestige for the Russian state domestically, you know, not, not, not just in terms of foreign policy, you know, achievements, but it as a, a, an institution of pride, you know, here I'm thinking also about the, 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 you know, the, the large emphasis on World War II memory. Uh, and and boosting you know the this the Red Army for example in its victory in World War II does it is does the Russian military have a better public standing amongst Russian citizens today? Um, let me take that on. It's actually two questions in there. Uh, one is about the military, and I think one is the one about Russian military history as as an integral component of the national idea that the system has tried to to create. So for the, in terms of the military, absolutely. It's actually the one real success story over the last decade for Russia, for the Russian leadership. They have completely revamped the public image of the military, public respect for the military, the prestige of military service, and the perception of the military as a respected institution, which was very much derided and everybody paid as much as they could to avoid it, you know, in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and, and that's actually, by, by the way, part of the reason why people like Shogi, the Minister of Defense, had been engaging in a sustained PR campaign, constantly doing all these games and multinational events and all these things. They're trying to actually show the Russian military as a place you want to go to, right? Uh, not it, it, Basically, they are trying to sell it and, and not to go down this rabbit hole, but it had a lot to do with the transformation of the military as well, post-2008, uh, the dramatic increase in the number of military personnel who are there under contract service as they, you know, they sign this contract for money. Well, you have to attract those people, right? And you have to be competitive in the Russian economy to attract those younger people, right? Um, you, if, you, if you need hundreds of thousands of them to fill in the military ranks, the military has to look like a place that might work. Russian conscription is maybe, I don't know, something like 250,000 per year, right? Well, the military is about 850 to 900,000 strong. So a very large percentage of those in the Russian military who are not officers, right? Let's say officers are somewhere 200, 220,000, right? Are contract personnel, people who have signed that contract. Maybe it's 370,000 or so or 380, something like that, right? So much larger shares contract, you have to attract them. I think that's part of the reason uh, it, is a, it is very much a success story from the political system's perspective. It's probably one of their biggest accomplishments in terms of public perception of, of uh, regime competence in, in the military sphere. The national idea question, the historical memory question is very interesting. So I think that that's very much about the, the military legacy of the narrative of Russia's victory in, in, in the Greek Patriotic War. And this is this is uh, one of the things that the political system has chosen to use as a central pillar or leg in trying to structure kind of national idea of what it means to be Russian and also using it for the military's role, because the Russian military for you know quite some time has been asking, wait, OK, what are these traditional conservative values? What does it mean to be Russian? Uh, the state has no ideology. What is the real kind of national idea? Uh, because the Russian military, of course, is constantly being inculcated in patriotism, but patriotism is very vague and, and, and kind of ambiguous to some extent. What does it mean to be patriotic you know, in Russia? And one of those answers, one of the answers to that question had been from the from the political system is, uh, one of the things it means to be patriotic is that we won a World War II and we were system determining power after World War II. Like, and, and quote unquote, we saved Europe, right? Um, and, and that narrative is very important. It's both important for the, I think, the regime and for the for the military. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Mike covered it pretty well. I don't have a lot to add on this. Uh, it is, you know, it is it is a striking success uh, in terms of the military, you know, perception and where you know people were avoiding service, uh, even you know after the reform started for a couple of you know, two thousand ten, two thousand twelve that period it was still uh but now but now it's uh it's certainly I mean, there's still variation it's easier to attract people from poorer parts of the country right than let's say from moscow uh but that's not any different than what we see in a 
you know, volunteer service in the United States, right? You're not getting nearly as many people going off to serve in the military from the wealthy suburbs of in the Northeast than you are from poor rural regions. It's just, you know, that's you, people who are looking for opportunities uh, are going to do that. And that's sort of, so, so in a way that's kind of a norm, a, a normalization, let's say of, of the Russian military and of service in the Russian military. Uh, that's, that's been quite successful. And you're, you hear a lot less uh, about problems with hazing uh, problems with uh, the sort of uh, the living environment, the food, things like that. I mean, they exist and they happen and there are uh, situations that happen from time to time where uh, there's some event, you know, some some uh, recruit has a, a problem and, you know, there's a there's a hazing situation or a, an attack on someone else. But those are, are kind of exceptions now rather than, than parts of the, the norm. Um, I want to talk about Afghanistan, um, which is the big issue of the month, it seems. And, you know, in, in the American press and, and just maybe in some extent the Russian press, there has, of course, brought back memories of the Soviet withdrawal of Afghanistan. Um, and, and there's been some comparison between, say, the Soviet withdrawal and the American withdrawal. I've seen that more in the American press. Uh, what do both of you make of this comparison? Uh, Michael, you could start. Yeah, I've seen a couple of people try to take uh, this perspective on the situation. Uh, I think a lot of what I see in the comparison is not necessarily that uh, well-informed by the history, but the, the comparisons are, are worthwhile. So the conditions are quite different, right? And people often forget that when we use this, when we look back in history and we use historical analogy, we can often focus on similarities, ignore the differences, and, and forget that the context, historical context, and the and the conditions we're working with are not quite the same. You know, even though certain things are the same, yes, it's Afghanistan, and yes, it's a power intervening in Afghanistan. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, but but uh, sometimes when folks argue. Uh, about kind of Russia today and, and the story, if the, particularly if they had their formative years in the 1980s, one of the things I like to say is I understand, but it's not the 1980s, okay? Like it's, um, you have to be careful in, in making these analogies. So, you know, what can I offer here, Sean? I mean, I, I'm happy to offer a comment on what I think the main, you know, the big differences are in outcomes, um, or at least in the process of what took place. I would say that a fair reading of the history of the Soviet Union's intervention, uh, summarized in a few seconds, which will not do the topic any justice, is that um, the Soviet Union began seriously looking for an exit in 1983 and made that clearly a policy under Gorbachev in 85 and had negotiated a withdrawal by 87, had completed that withdrawal by, if I remember right, uh, February 1989. Um, the United States and Pakistan were major counterparties to the war, right, as opponents arming the, the Mujahideen. Uh, after the Soviet Union withdrew, Najibullah's regime actually lasted over three years. In fact, the initial battles that uh, the, the U.S. and Pakistan intelligence thought would lead to the collapse of his regime early on in Jalalabad, they lost. Um, the, the Afghan military that the Soviet Union continued left, but continued to support actually did pretty well. Now, over the course of those next couple of years, he did, his forces did steadily lose ground, but, uh, not dramatically. And one of the principal causes of the collapse of the Najibullah regime was that the Soviet Union itself dissolved at the end of 1991. And uh, Russia under Yeltsin cut off support. He needed money, he needed oil in particular, and cut off support, and that was sort of a ca uh, catalyzing event. And then uh, Dostum, the famous warlord whose forces just, you know, he's still around, whose forces just recently crossed into Uzbekistan uh, this past month, uh, the very same Dostum defected from Najibullah to <laughs> the Mujahideen forces in March of uh, 1992, and Najibullah's regime collapsed in uh, in April. So that's kind of a short summary. Um, 
you know, so things went very differently. And one interpretation you could say is like, well, the Soviet Union had a much more structured withdrawal. They were defeated, but at least they sort of drove across the friendship bridge with flags raised and all that, all that good stuff. Um, and and uh, what they what they left lasted quite longer. Okay, that's a take. I would say that genuinely the political context and the conditions in Afghanistan were very different back then, right? So, um, and and keep in, and keep in mind one important factor. Afghanistan wasn't a civil war. That civil war continued then in the 1990s. Then the Taliban took control in 96. Then the war continued after 96, right? And Russia was backing the separate corner of the Northern Alliance through those years. And it continued under us. And the, we as the United States intervened in the midst of an ongoing civil war, which was never resolved. Never resolved in Afghanistan. And uh, we'll, we'll still likely continue in some way, shape or form. I don't know. We'll see. But that that's another that's another important conversation to be had. So so in, in, in many respects, if you look at it from, say, the on the ground, it's kind of more of a continuum <laughs> than, than, say, this period of breaking. Right. In terms of the, the the Soviet and then the American involvement in the region. Yeah, there there are definitely elements of of continuity that I think we've often failed to recognize in dealing with this conflict. Um, but I would say that the on the whole the U.S. intervention went quite differently from that in the Soviet Union. And you could make a takeaway that, okay, the Soviet Union got out much faster and um, and when it did, it withdrew in a much better and more structured uh, manner. And the outcome looked, you know, less kind of politically disastrous, right, at, at the time. And, and and my answer to that is, yeah, that's a possible takeaway, but there, there, are, a lot of, there are a lot of caveats and in making those conclusions. Uh, somebody who had to deal with this war in, in the US Department of Defense, at least tangentially or, or in a cursory manner. Um, I, I would definitely say that uh, I, I had, I would have very much wished that we had withdrawn 10 years earlier, <laughs> if not earlier than that. I'll be very frank, just from my own personal perspective, I, uh, I, I thought this conflict was lost from the very first time I even had to deal with it. So, um, it is, you know, yeah, it's, that's, so, so I, I, I look at the, I look at the events of, of these past months as, as something I both didn't want to see, but, but I very much wanted to see us withdraw from this conflict a long time ago. I think, you know, Mike, Mike's kind of nailed it on the, uh, on, on, certainly on, on the, the, the historical parallels, the, uh, uh the thing, the thing about uh, the uh, the withdrawal from, I wrote a, a way back when something on the impact of the Afghan withdrawal on Russian politics, right? And and so there was, uh, I think that context, right? That that this was in the context of a collapsing Soviet state, uh, where. Had and and really kind of cemented the you know to bring it to the Russian military right I think that it cemented the perception of the Rus Soviet slash Russian military as a, a failure right and as a place where you didn't want to be and so it had that impact on uh, on uh, Russia and its position in, in its military position in Russia and then Russia's role in the world, right? Uh, in a way that I don't think that this withdrawal will have on the U.S. Uh, just because we're in a very different place uh, politically. And, you know, there's lots of takes right now that I've seen on, oh, this is going to, you know, no one will trust the U.S. again in the, you know, our allies don't believe our reassurance. I'm not buying that, right? I think that this is something that the U.S. has been kind of telegraphing, right? Like Mike said, you know, the withdrawal is something that probably should have happened much earlier, probably when Biden first advocated for it in the Obama administration uh, in 2009. Uh, and, and so everyone knew it was coming, and I don't think it's going to have serious effects on a kind of perceptions of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, there may be bigger effects from 
you know, what people have started calling the Biden doctrine, where, you know, a, a more reluctance to intervene. But that's also something that's not uh, that, that that's another statement that's a codification rather than new policy. <laughs> yeah. Can I have something briefly? I think the one analogy they do see is that, you know, going into Afghanistan uh, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and United States were, were actually in a very strange place. The military balance very much favored the United States, but both sides actually believed it favored the Soviet Union in 1979, which is incredibly, incredibly weird. And and even when Reagan was was briefed by people telling him that, no, the military balance favored the United States, he just ignored him, which, by the way, is an incredibly common experience for an analyst of any kind. Um, and, and the war helped in that context serve as a confirming event, as in the 1980s, the U.S. grew much more confident that it was, in fact, negotiating with the Soviet Union from a position of strength, and it could negotiate a wind down to the Cold War confidently. And the Soviet Union also began to genuinely acknowledge that it was in a position of weakness and it had to pursue a policy of retrenchment and concessions and the like, right? And the, the war helped really shape those perceptions, along with other, you know, indicators about Soviet economic performance and the like, but they... You know, a big part of it was convincing also so the Soviet Union's own political leadership about the state of affairs, right? And to me, Afghanistan today is very much a lagging indicator, right, about the conversation that we've probably been having since the mid-2000s, which is not the absolute decline of American power, but the relative decline of American power after this sort of zenith of 1990s and, and the early mid-2000s and U.S. ability to shape events and outcomes, and that's why I see the self-immolation in our policy establishment of the last couple of weeks, right? We're realizing the political costs and consequences of defeating this war. The war was lost a long time ago. And there's a confirming events of certain trends in, in terms of the relative U.S. ability um, to achieve outcomes, right, in international politics. Like, it's a, it's a sobering, it, it, it's, a, it's a very much a sobering affair. And, and there I do see some analogies. So that that actually leads to my next question, uh, Dimitri, and that is, how is this being viewed from from Russia? Sure. Uh, well, I th uh, the uh, one thing that we should keep in mind is that Russia's relationship with the Taliban now is very different from Russia's relationship with the Taliban in the in the late '90s when they were in power. Right? They've they've also just like everyone else realized this was coming and uh, established uh, some connections and, uh, uh, you know, have been, have been talking to the Taliban for several years. Um, and so, so they're more sanguine, I think, about the, 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 there's a little bit less fear of Taliban kind of Going into Central Asia and 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 just destabilizing it uh, than uh, than there was in the '90s, and uh, Taliban may have learned as well, and they may be less interested in that uh, to start uh, 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 to start with. So I think that they are happy to see the U.S. kind of taken down a peg, right? That's that's. Uh, uh, just from the point of view of the of the larger inter international competition between between Russia and the U.S., that's you know whenever the U.S. suffers a, a defeat on the uh, on the on the uh, stage of international perceptions, that's seen as a positive for Russia. So there is you know there is concern that something could go awry. There is, a, like Mike said, the civil war of some kind is likely to continue uh, and that could have spillover effects that Russia wouldn't uh, wouldn't like uh, so so I think I think that's where we are and I I'll, I'll I know Mike just wrote a piece on on this so I'm sure he has lots to add uh, I'll let I'll let him take it yeah Russia's been hedging against this outcome starting at least as far back as 2015 and really reestablished connections and ties with the Taliban and um it, it was clear to them that we might very well lose and that the Afghan regime that we were supporting wasn't necessarily going to last much longer after we left. I'd say that their current approach is premised on selective engagement and containment. 
that the engagement part of it is based on the proposition that Russia can build a working relationship with the Taliban. And the containment part of it is based on uh, basically reinforcing Central Asian states and collaborating with China to uh, make sure that the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan doesn't result in sort of couple critical effects. I would say the three main things that Russia is looking for from the Taliban, and they've gotten assurances in this regard, right? But obviously, you know, how well do you trust the Taliban, both either to either do it or to even have the ability to do it, uh, is one that they are satisfied with Afghanistan, and they're not going to seek any further territorial aggrandizement or, or pursue aims in neighboring Central Asian states. The second is that the Taliban will work very hard to ensure that terrorist groups based in Afghanistan are not going to conduct attacks, terrorist attacks in Russia against Russian soil. And this is groups like uh, ISIS-K and the like. Uh, the third is that they're not going to support uh, uh, fundamentals or jihadist movements in Russia or Central Asia, and uh, which they actually did when they first took over. And I mean, they were there. I think they were basically the only people to recognize uh, the sort of Chechen separatists when, when they first took over in Afghanistan. Uh, there are obviously concerns about, you know, instability emanating resulting from this conflict, refugee flows to Central Asian states and the like, and that's an aspect of, of, of Russia's approach to contain, to contain the, the fallout from this conflict. But the context today is very different from, you know, when the Taliban took over. Central Asian states are not newly independent states. They've actually, some of them, gone through authoritarian regime transitions. They're much more consolidated, and they've demonstrated their ability to, to actually uh, pursue their own interests. Um, you, you're basically, you're, you're dealing in a region that is not a power vacuum today. It's, it's a region with uh, countries that have found a way to work, deal with Russian influence, with Chinese growing economic influence, and hold their own. So there's much greater confidence. The biggest problem for Russia is that different Central, different Central Asian autocrats have responded uh, in in their own way to the Taliban takeover. So Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan had built decent relationships with the Taliban, had good inroads, and Rahman Tajikistan's leader did not, right? And so he had a very adverse reaction to the Taliban takeover. And so Russia's gonna struggle a bit to you know kind of corral uh, responses in the region. And it remains to be seen, you know, what role China wants to take on uh, at the end of the day here. Russia is the typical, uh, I won't say security provider, but the country most capable of determining security outcomes in the region with the most consistent track record of doing it. China has a lot of economic influence, but people incorrectly interpret money as a sort of stand in for power and influence. Uh, it really isn't. And Central Asia is one of the top regions where uh, you as a great power actor can spend all the money you want and you're going to be terribly and unpleasantly surprised as to what it got you in terms of influence and ability to shape uh local actors and in their in their policy uh preferences so that's the one thing i'll say is that money does not money doesn't bench nearly as much as you think it will right right well as we as we learned over the last 20 years yeah central asia can absorb money uh it has a tremendous absorption capacity for the resources of other powers um, and finally, um, starting with you, Michael, what are some things in the Russian military security sphere that you're going to be focusing on in the coming year or so? Uh, we recently put out a report at CNA on Russian military strategy that I'm really excited about called Cortan's Operational Concepts. I'm just going to flog it for two seconds, which is to say that a lot of times we focus on Russian capabilities in discussion. And that intellectually to me is kind of the lowest level of discussion. The more interesting conversation is operational concepts and strategy. It really talks about how the military actually plans to use something, why plans to use it that way. And that actually makes the biggest difference typically in uh, in conflict and in uh, stratagems or strategies for, for how to deter the other side, right? This is the biggest distinction. And and the reason for that, that's what I, what I tend to focus on, is that military establishments come to dramatically different conclusions about the implications role of a particular military technology, right? They often mirror image each other, but but uh, erroneously and, and comically so. They actually have very different conclusions about what the military balance is, what the role of military capabilities are, what emerging technology trends mean for that future, right? And so I, I tend to focus on that. I tend to focus on concept development, which I find really interesting. I tend to focus a lot on defense spending, which I and maybe three other people in the world find interesting. Um, and, 
you know, and probably in, in uh, and also the the interaction between military and political leadership, because a lot people often have, I think, a mistaken view and understanding of what the role of the military is in helping to determine the decision to go to war, in advising political leadership, or in in causes of war, right? So, so uh, to me, to me, that's also important too, because political leaders are actually a very different community. They make the decisions on war, and uh, believe it or not. Uh, they're really unimpressed by a lot of things that impress military analysts and, and military folks and leaders and actually don't care about a lot of that capability stuff. And, and they have a completely different perception often. Well, not completely different, but they, they, they have a different stylized perception of the military balance uh, than than um, than uh, the defense community itself. Right. And and uh, if you ever if you want to be if you ever want to be comically surprised or terrified, uh, all it takes is for you to spend a couple of minutes listening to a senior political leader, what their understanding is of military technology or capabilities and the like, and you quickly begin to see that what you think it is and what their impression of it are are, are, are two very different things. So that, that's often that's often the result. So I, I also focus on that. I try to figure out what are the gaps there in, in our understanding, because some things like nuclear use actually require understanding of um, political decision making and about civil relations and, and things of that nature right so sorry that, that that's kind of that's kind of short summary but these are these are the things i focus on and of course people on the internet debating you know whether whether a specific pointy stick is four feet tall or four and a half feet tall that's that's the critical debate we need to have <laughs> <All right. laughs> and dimitri what are some things you're going to be watching out for yeah, so so I'm kind of getting back into looking at uh, personnel on the uh, on the military side. So this is something I was working on on the Navy a few years ago and wrote some wrote some things that were, were published in, in different places. Uh, just how uh, some of the factors that lead to uh, success, you know, career, kind of career trajectories of uh of senior uh, military officials so i'm trying to take some of the methodologies that uh, uh we developed on uh, doing this for the navy uh for the russian navy and apply it more broadly to other services so that that's kind of a study that's in progress right now and uh will be uh you know hopefully uh we'll, you know we'll be putting that out sometime in early early next year uh that's that's probably going to be taking up the bulk of my time over the next few months. Uh, I'm also interested in, uh, I used to, I used to do a fair bit of work on uh, Russian defense industry and I kind of gotten away from that. And I'm interested in at some point uh, in the near future, jumping back into that and seeing where they're at and where uh, some of the, uh, I, I, my sense is that there's been a lot of improvements in defense industry capabilities uh, but I'd be uh, I'd I'd like to actually see where you know get a little more granular look at, at some of that. Uh, so those are those are kind of two two main areas on on military in particular. And then I'm kind of continuing uh, uh, looking at the the kind of strategic decision making and work, how how the Russian leadership responds to crises and you know, how it makes decisions in in. Uh, foreign policy and military sphere. And that's, that's, that's kind of an ongoing interest that I'm continuing, continuing to work on. That was Michael Kaufman and Dimitri Gorenberg. Michael Kaufman is a research scientist at the Center for Naval Analyses and a fellow at the Kennan Institute, where he specializes in security and defense in Eurasia. He comments widely on Russian military affairs and foreign policy, and he blogs about those, these subjects at his website, Russian Military Analysis. You can also find a long list of his many recent publications there as well. Dmitry Gorenberg is a senior research scientist in the Strategy, Policy, Plans, and Programs Division at the Center for Naval Analyses and an associate at the Harvard University David Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. He currently serves as the editor for Problems of Post-Communism, and Gorenberg is the author of Nationalism for the Masses, Minority Ethnic Mobilization in the Russian Federation. He has published widely and comments on all things Russian military on his blog, Russian Military Reform. 
I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media, tell all your friends and family about it. And you can also drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or on the srbpodcast.org webpage and let us know what you think. As always, if you like this podcast, we'd love your support. The SRB Podcast and all of its various programming is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions to keep it completely free without any paywalls or advertisements. So please help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org and join the table of ranks. And as always, I want to thank my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblenesses for their continued patronage. Until next week, bye. The 28th of July, 1914. Austria, Serbia, Germany, Russia, the British Empire. Liège, Togoland, Tannenberg, Japan, Halle, Mulhouse, Qingdao, Le Grand Fait, Alcona, Komarov, Marne, Charleroi, Albert, Sarakamus, Antwerpen, Warszawa. The Ottoman Empire.